Well, I call your attention this morning to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. I'd like to begin reading verse 13 and read down through verse 17. My text is actually verses 16 and 17, but let's just pick up a little bit of the context as we do so. Beginning in verse 13 of James chapter 1. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Again, my text are those last two verses. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. As we stated in the introduction to this epistle, the overall theme, you remember, is of James here is true or pure religion. And as we have seen, true religion then is going to be tested. It's going to be tempted. It's going to be tried. So let none of us here this morning feel that there is something wrong with our Christianity if we're going through trials or we're going through adversity. Because really this is just the lot that God's people have been tossed, as we would say, into. And of course, James has been dwelling upon this very fact from actually beginning there in verse 2 when he tells us there, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. So, Christian, we need to realize that our faith will face the trials, it will face the temptations, it will face the hardships, and it will face the tribulations of this hard life. We live in a fallen world, thus we're going to be uh, faced with sinful realities that take place in this life. And as we have made our way uh, along this and excuse me, as we do make our way along this narrow road that does lead to eternal life, we will face those bumps, those speed bumps, and those potholes that are along the way. Now, you know, I'm speaking figuratively there. That is, we'll face the temptations and we will face the trials that go along uh, the route of being on the narrow way. And Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Or chapter 1, yes, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And you think, wow, that all sounds great. And boy, that's, 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 that's some good stuff there. That's stuff that we can lay hold of and, and we can think about and meditate upon and realize that heaven's at ours. Heaven's is ours. But then he goes on, though, and says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time? We're in, that is, in this faith, in this salvation, in this state of being saved by the grace of God, ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, 
ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So here we see the Apostle Peter putting the good along, as we would say, with the bad there, doesn't it? That's the reality of the Christian walk. We are all these things that the Bible speaks of. Just across the page there, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter reminds us that we are lively stones, that we are a spiritual house, that we are a chosen generation, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But, this does not exempt us from temptations. Peter has explained that in the first part of chapter 1. He's going to go on and explain it even further in chapter 3 of this, of this book of First Peter. And this is what James has been telling us. Brethren, we stand in a most unusual position as the children of God. We are the peculiar people of God. But even so, though, we are not exempt from the trials and tribulations of this life. And one of the purposes of temptation, as we have seen from James here, is to mature us. There are many purposes of temptations and trials, but just one of them that he gets through here is the trying of our faith is that it works patience and let patience have our perfect work. Why? Because God is maturing us through these things. But as we learned last week, though, when temptations come and trials come our way, The purpose of God in these things is not to cause us to do evil. That's what he says very plainly in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God does not and God cannot work in that fashion. He is not a God who tempts his people. To sin. And James tells us why there in verse 13 as well. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither tempteth he any man. So those are the two reasons as to why that can never take place. So, brethren, when we are tempted to do evil or, or to sin, the inclination isn't from God, the inclination is from our own sinful hearts. Again, notice verse 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And brethren, this is the lesson. As you remember how we kind of looked at last week, James was teaching us some lessons here in this passage. And one of the main lessons here is that he would have us to know is that God does not tempt us to evil. And when we do evil, that temptation didn't come from God. It came from within. So, brethren, we cannot blame God. We cannot blame God's providence or the circumstances that arises from God's providence. No, the inclination to sin comes from the evil inclination of our own depraved hearts. In fact, James thinks that this is such an important matter that he's going to show us in verse 16. No, he doesn't show us. He commands us in verse 16. Don't mistake this. Look at it again. This is our text. Do not err, my beloved brethren. 
This is such an important issue. And probably because, in one reason, it's a confusing issue. We know that God does ordain all things that comes to pass. We, we believe that. Our confession states it. The Bible itself says it. What do we do with the evil? What do we do with sin? Well, one of the things we cannot do with it in our understanding theologically is to lay it at God's feet. Because that's not where it's at. It comes from within. And so he tells us here, brethren, don't err in this matter. This is a very important lesson we need to learn. Don't err in this matter. Don't make this mistake that God is such a God that He would tempt us to evil. So the first thing I'd like us to see in all of this then from verse 16 is I want us to understand something of the danger of deception. The danger of deception. Notice he says here again, this is in the imperative. It's a command. Do not err. Don't think falsely here. Don't reason this out to where you charge God with sin. Don't even dare go there. Stay as far from that issue as you possibly can. Don't make the mistake. So do not err. But sin is so deceptive, isn't it? It can make us even charge God with folly. It can even make us say in the midst of our own trials and sorrows and disappointments in life that, aha, I am tempted to evil by God. That's how deceptive sin is. And we may be able to logically, theologically reason it out to where we've got God guilty of sin. But James tells us, now wait a minute. Don't go there. Don't be so foolish into thinking that God would tempt us to sin. Do not err. Well, what's the erring have to do with? Well, obviously, for us to think or to lay charge on God for the temptation to do evil. That's the immediate context. And I realize it's going to spill over into verse 17. But before we get to that, we have to see that's what the negative side of this is. Don't be so foolish into charging God with sin. And brethren, here's where we need to realize that errors in thought and in theology do have consequences. This is why false doctrine is a dangerous thing. You say, well, it's just a little false doctrine. Well, little false doctrine breeds bigger false doctrines. And bigger false doctrines brings bigger consequences. So we need to be careful. Because it does matter what we think. It matters what we think in the secular realm, just as so it matters in the spiritual realm. You know, we're often told in our mindless Christian society in which we do live, it doesn't really matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you believe. But brethren, that's not true. It is just not true. That's a lie that the devil has pulled over the eyes of American Christians. It does make a difference what we think and what we believe. And we can take it a different, even a step further. It makes a difference what you hear because that's going to cause you to think. 
Here again is why we're so particular, and I recognize it has repercussions. That means people are going to be looking at us with a fine lens as well. But the truth of the matter is, it does make a difference what you hear. It does make a difference where you go to church. It does make a difference to the theology that you're embracing. There are consequences to it. And I recognize that verse 13, that's just one verse out of all of James. And I didn't count the words in that verse, but there aren't very many. It would seem like a small thing, wouldn't it? But don't err in this matter of charging God with your sinful inclinations, my sinful inclinations. Because it does matter, you see, what we think. This is why as a pastor, I'm careful about what you hear, careful about what you read, careful about what you see. That's why I preach in the way and manner in which I do preach. And careful about the flock, watching over them. Because I know one day I shall give an account. And I may have to ruffle a few feathers here, but rather ruffle a few feathers here than God ruffle mine at the day of judgment. And yours as well for following it. The false doctrine. It's important. And again, let me hammer this out this morning. It does matter what you think. The Scripture itself is plain on that. For as a man thinketh, so is he. You think erroneous, you will be erroneous. Erroneous means children. If you're thinking wrong, you'll be wrong. You'll be wrong in your walk. You'll be wrong in your talk. You'll be wrong in your callings. That's why we're told, for instance, in Proverbs, keep thy heart with all diligence. Why, Solomon, would you want your son to keep his heart with all diligence? Why should he make this a major thing in his life? Above all things, as the word would be there, keep thy heart. Why? He tells us, for out of it are the issues of life. That's why it's important. That's why it's not a small matter. That's why it's not a little thing to be careful what you read, careful what you watch, careful what you see, and careful what you hear. Because you're to keep your heart. And the God uses, and just as this is the way we're created by the, the marvelous hand of God, He uses the eye gate and the ear gate and the tongue gate, there is such a thing, for our minds to be saturated with stuff, good or bad. And wrong thoughts about God, brethren, can bring sin. Here again, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Recognize that. Brethren, do not err in this, he says. We should be careful. Now think about with me when you read that text there in verse 13. This wasn't spoken in a vacuum. James just didn't go, oh, wow, that's a good thought. I think I'll jot that down and send it to the, to the brethren there or scattered around. There was a reason that God moved him to write what he said there. Because in that day and time, you remember, there were a lot of false gods. Even Israel themselves were worshiping falsely. But just in that Grecian world in which they lived, that Grecian thought, that Grecian theology, or uh, yeah, it was a theology really, but that Grecian uh, philosophy that was theirs, they lived in a, at a time when the heathens believed that the gods possessed the same kind of passions that they did. If a, if a person could sin and a person can do evil, so could a god. 
I don't know if you remember. I remember, in, it's probably about the only thing I remember my education days in school when I was younger and in high school. I remember we were studying about the Roman and the Grecian gods. And they made us memorize all the names of the gods. You know, the Greeks had one name for them and the, and the Romans had. And you'll even run across that, by the way, in the book of Acts. You'll see a couple of names there are given that were of the gods of that day. But they, in their mind and in their thinking, if you remember in your, back in your school days, those gods were wicked, sinful things. They were selfish. They tempted men to do evil. They were just wicked. Well, that's what James was writing about. That's what was on James's mind. He realizes he's got a folks who are scattered across the Roman Empire who are being infiltrated in their thinking by this heathen philosophy that gods do evil. Gods do wickedly. And they could even tempt men to sin. And James says, don't err here. That's not true of the Christian God. Our God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted He any man. There's the difference between our God, the Christian God, and the heathen God. Israel, too, you know, possessed a false notion about God. And it brought a, a, a false actions out of them. In the, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in the 50th Psalm, we see this accusation against Israel. And listen very carefully. He begins in verse 16. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? Seeing thou hatest instruction, and castest my words behind thee. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him, and hast been partakers, or taker, with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things thou hast done, and I kept silence. Though thou thoughtest that I was altogether such as one as thyself. You see, they thought of God like they thought of themselves. And what did it cause them to do? Did you notice the catalog of sins that he listed there from verses 16 down through verse 21? Because they thought God was just like they were with the passions that they possessed, the evil inclinations that they possessed. They thought that was what... This caused them to live in such a way that they were sinful. You see, it does make a difference what you think. So, do not err, my brethren. Back to our text. You notice that he says that imperative command there, do not err. But notice how he boasts this command. My beloved brethren. Notice, as he commands this, without any thought as far as, you know, how he said it, obviously it just says here, we don't know how it came out or anything like that, other than do not err. But notice how he comes along here, and with this commandment, he caps it off with a very tender phrase. He speaks authoritatively, do not err. And then he comes in behind and says, My dearly beloved. That's very pastoral, isn't it? 
Sometimes we have to be straightforward with the folks. Sometimes we have to say no. Sometimes we have to be hard. Sometimes we have to say this is the truth whether you like it or not. Don't do this. The Bible forbids it. Stop it. Dearly beloved. So James is following a very pastoral mentality here, isn't it? And there's two reasons, I think, why he would say this. First of all, it's to truly show that he does care. James isn't sitting here in Jerusalem somewhere and sending out a letter and it really doesn't have an effect upon him. No, he wants them to know that he has a great love for them. He uses these endearing terms, my beloved brethren. That's endearing. It's to catch their thought to show them that he really does love them. That he wasn't just being mean in verse uh, 16, the first part. He's being loving when he tells you don't err. So this morning when I tell you and stand here and tell you that you ought to be careful what you see, read, and watch, I do so out of love. Dearly beloved, don't err. You will be what you see. You will act what you think. For out of the heart are the issues of life, he tells us. Don't make a mistake in that, beloved. And then the second reason I think he could have done this is the importance of the matter. He speaks in a loving way because of how important this is. In other words, he understands something of the nature of man. If he just said it that way and stopped, he knew that he probably wouldn't get much of a hearing. Here again, parents, listen to me on this. You know, when you're training your children, you give them the commands. Make sure there's some love behind it. You who are studying for the ministry and you too one day perhaps will be standing here in an authoritative fashion and tell them, don't err, but then back it up with some very loving words. Why? Because you want to carry the day with them, I hope. You want them to take this matter seriously. And as it can be seen here from the context, uh, this is speaking, in a first of all, in a very negative manner, isn't he? Don't think this way. Don't think this way. The mistake you don't need to be thinking is this, he says, that God could tempt us with evil. Don't err, dearly beloved. I plead with you this morning, don't think that way. Whatever your theological slant may be here today, don't think that, that God would tempt us to evil. What a wrong view of God, isn't it? Don't think that way. But the second thing, though, in verse 17, I think is where this verse now falls to the other side. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Don't make a mistake on that part either. So it's really a two-way street here, isn't it? Don't make the mistake thinking that God can tempt you to evil. And then don't forget this. God gives good gifts to His people. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. He he doesn't want you to forget. He doesn't want us to forget. And I don't want you to forget here this morning that God is the giver of all good. What a contrast from verse 13 with the idea of thinking God could do evil with verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That's a contrast, isn't it? Well, again, James just didn't write this off the cuff. 
He had purpose behind this. He wants us to see this context and this contrast at this point. So let's look at verse 17. This is my second head. We should rightly view God not only as one who cannot be tempted with evil then, or that he tempts any man with evil, but he is the God of all good. A rather long head. I don't think I've ever given a heading that long, have I? But here it is again. We should rightly view God not only as one who cannot be tempted with evil or tempts any man with evil, but as the God of all good, who gives good and perfect gifts to his people. So James here shows us that God is far from the source of evil or sin. Rather, he is the God of all good matter. And notice how he does this. This is, a, this is a trip down a theological road he takes us. One of the things we study uh, when I'm in the training of the young men here is theology. And don't be scared of that word. It just simply means the study of God. Theos is God in the Greek. Ology has to do with uh, the study of. So theology is simply the study of God. For those who say, well, I don't like theology, guess what they're really saying? I don't like to study God. Well, they're saying that in ignorance, obviously, because that would only be an ignorant man who would say something as foolish as that. And there's true. There's good theology and there's bad theology. But we're hoping this morning to present some good theology here today. And we see it here in verse 17. We see some theological concepts of God in verse 17. So he wants us to realize, first of all, God's not like this. He's not a God who tempts us to evil, but he is and rather a God who is this way, who gives good gifts. And in this we see about four theological things. First of all, by inference, and this will be the remainder of my sermon this morning, by inference, we see that God in His essence is good. How do I say that? Well, because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. The one who begets and gives these gifts that are good and perfect, it comes from something or someone who is good in essence. And here we see something then about the nature of God. One of the things that you study in theology is the being of God. What's He like? And we call those things children attributes. And the word attribute simply means something of His characteristic. For instance, we would talk about the attributes of Pastor Mark this morning. You could say, well, one, he's bald, isn't he? He doesn't have any hair on the top of his head. That's an attribute of Pastor Langley. You could also say that Pastor Langley has blue-green eyes. If you look closely into my eyes, you would see that they're blue-green. And you could say that's a characteristic or an attribute of Pastor Langley. He has blue-green He's six foot or so. And you could say that and all these things are describing something of my person, my being. Well, that's the way we look at God sometimes. God has revealed to us certain things in His Word about Him so that we can have some measure of a comprehension or a knowledge of Him. What's God like? Well, one of the things He tells us here about this God whom we worship is that He is a God who is good. Now, there's a lot of other things we could say about God. For instance, He's just. He's holy, he's righteous, he's eternal, he's immense, and all those things. But God, James here would stop here at this moment and say, no, look, he's good. He is a God who is good. 
Now, in that, he's echoing something that God had told Moses back in Exodus 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. As God was passing before Moses, as Moses desired something to see, he wanted to see something of God. And God says, well, if you look at me face to face, you won't live. But I'll show you my hinder parts, whatever that meant. He says, that's what I'll show you. And when he passes by, he tells him something of his name. Here is Jehovah's name, and he tells us, this is what I'm like. I am the Lord God, Jehovah God. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm long-suffering. I'm abundant in goodness and truth. So in one of the very description of who and what God is, is that He's good. Children, the God of your fathers is a good God. Yes, He's holy. Yes, He's long-suffering. He's merciful. All those things. But He's also good. He's a good God. Psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience. That's what he means by that when he says taste and see. He didn't mean go take a bite out of God. But he means there, experience this. You ought to be able to think and to recognize in your past life how that God has been with you from the, from the beginning. So taste and see that the Lord is good. He says in another place, Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Psalm 86, 5. For thou, Lord, art good. And he gives an expression of that. And ready to forgive. Plenteous mercy unto all generations. Another text. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners the way. So we see here. He's good. The Bible declares him very plainly as to being good. And so I'm not far from the the theology of this verse when I say then that when we see here that he gives every good gift and every perfect gift is from God, that shows us that he is a good God. And brethren, why would he say that? Because in the midst of trials and tribulation, this would be a very precious thing to hear. That God is good. God is good. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what should I do that I may inherit eternal life? What did Jesus tell him? What did he remind that young man? Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. See, the rich young ruler didn't realize who he was standing before, did he? That he was the good God, Jesus Christ. There again is something of God. He is good. Remember after he created the world, what did he he say there? After he created all things, he he pronounced it what? Good, didn't he? He beheld it and he thought it was good. But you know, of course, sin entered into the world. And that creation then became bad, didn't it, children? But God didn't. God still remained good, even though His creation became corrupt. But God did not. So we serve a good God. So in the midst of your trials, and and maybe perhaps at at the tip of your tongue, you're ready to say, God is the cause of my sin. You need to stop and think, no, rather, God is good. 
when you're ready to lay blame to God, you need to stop your mouth and say, God is good. He is the one who gives good gifts and every perfect gift to us. Not only that, we see theologically from verse 17. Secondly, he's the good giver. Not only is he good, but he manifests that goodness by giving. Of course, one of the best, oh no, the best gift he ever gave was what? I think we'd have to recognize it's the Son of God himself, wasn't it? His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But wait a minute. James tells us here, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Now again, this is set in contrast with what he said a little bit earlier in verse 13, didn't it? Let no man say that when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Rather, tempting men to evil, God, though, instead gives what? Good and perfect gifts. That's a contrast, isn't it? And that's what James wants us to see here. Look, the God, unlike the heathens about us and all the philosophy that's flowing into us and perhaps even some of the false doctrine that you professing Christians may hold, let me assure you of this. Every good gift comes from God. Always has and always will. He is the good God. And they come for Him. Noting simply here that He is the donor of those things. That's the source. Notice he says here, they're from above. He didn't necessarily mean that you look up and you get them and that sort of thing. But he means here, the source. Where do they come from? Do they come from the clouds? The first heavens? Second heavens? No. What he's saying here is that they come from God, these good gifts. So any good gift we possess, brethren, we need to realize that God is the author of it. Not the author of inclination to sin. He's the author of the good gifts that we possess. And then notice something else now. Theologically, he's the father of lights. Again, going back to the creation, we know that he's the creator of light. Notice here in our text, it's in the... Let me read that again. Yeah, it's in the plural. I wrote that down on my notes making sure I didn't look that. But he's the father of lights. Many lights. More than one light. When we think of the physical world... And we think of God creating. What was one of the things He created? He created light, didn't He? In fact, He created more than one light. He created other lights. He created the greater light and He created the lesser light. And He even tells us why He did that. And it was so that man would have a compass. Man would have a reason. Man would have some purpose in these things of the creation. Psalms 8, speaking of the the uh, temporal light or the physical light. Psalm 8 and verse 3. I'll just turn there. <clears throat> he says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? When you look out and you see those stars, those suns, those moons out there, makes you think you're a little... Small, aren't done it? When you think about the vastness of heaven. You ever get a pair of binoculars and look up on a dark night when the sky's clear? You're just a speck in this world. And yet God takes notice of man. 
in particular, takes notice of the context there of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. But if we were to think of the spiritual light, think of that. And that would seem to be the context because the next verse he talks about the regeneration of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. So spiritual light certainly would be the focus here. God is that as well. The scripture says, then this then is the message which we heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, the scripture tells us. Again, Timothy, hearing some theology from Paul, says, Who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, which no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. When it comes to the new birth, is that not a work of the grace of God imparting light unto the soul? For God who commanded, he says, the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we think of our sanctification, it's the same again, that light. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my life, the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Paul reminds us to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in this world. He says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in this world. That's something of the sanctifying power of God in us, isn't it? All of these things, brethren, are because of who God is. And then the last lesson in theology this morning is in verse 17. With whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There is a phrase in theology or word we use to describe God and it is that he's immutable. The immutability of God, they call it. You know what that means, children? It's just a fancy word meaning God doesn't change. God is the same God He was 6,000 years ago as He is today and He will be for all eternity. And God as the Father of the, what we noticed a while ago, the temporal light, we know that it changes, doesn't it? And this is probably what James is having reference to, like a sundial. You know, we realize the sun doesn't really set and go up. That's something that the earth does. But it's just a figure of speech the way we say it. But we know when the earth turns around, the light moves, doesn't it? And that's why if you've ever seen a sundial, you stick it and you point it towards the north and the light falls in and tells you what time it is. Well, before they had wristwatch like this, they had sundials. And they would set them out in their yard or in their garden, so to speak. And then I would know what the time would be. And the shadow would move along the dial so many degrees and then they would recognize what time of day it was. And we know that that changes. You could look at the sundial at, what, at 12 o'clock high. And then you come back three hours later, it will not be in the same spot, will it? That light or that shadow would have moved. So there is a changeability there. And James is contrasting, that's not so with God. You can come back three hours later, and he's at the same spot on the sundown. He doesn't move. He doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning with God. You see, God Himself never changes. His being stays the same. Malachi says, For I am the Lord. Actually, God's saying this through Malachi. For I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob 
are not consumed. Paul reminds us of Christ. And he tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. All of this, again, is spoken in contrast to the evil that we would impute on God for tempting us to do evil. And James sets this out beautifully to show us that God is good. And He gives good gifts and He never changes. You see, He won't be evil today and good tomorrow. And then the next day He decides to be evil again. It won't work that way. That's the way the heathen's gods are. But not the God whom we serve. He is always and continually and essentially good. My brethren, do not err. It's true. And brethren, if we know this and we are assured of this, we will then lay our sins at our own feet rather than God's. And we said last week that one of the things about true repentance is we quit blaming everybody and everything except ourselves. We take the blame. I have sinned. It wasn't my environment. It wasn't Eve. It wasn't Adam. It wasn't the devil. It was me. I sinned. And most assuredly, it wasn't God. Well, let me close with some application. Real quick ones. First of all, theological errors can lead and do lead to bad and sinful results. Mark it down. You think wrong about God. You think wrong theology. You're going to mess up. I've seen it time and time again with people who come through here. Leaving, coming, believing probably the error to begin with and leaving with the error. And then in their lives show it. The instability of their lives. Bopping here and there. No, no stability. Brethren, we need to realize that God puts a high premium upon right and spiritual knowledge of Him. That's why Paul says that we ought to be praying for a revelation of the knowledge of God. He didn't mean any kind of outside of Scripture type of revelation, but a further and deeper understanding of God. And then secondly, these passages also begin for us the means by which we do fight against sinful lusts and temptations. Remember we said earlier this morning as we were looking in the Bible study about Joshua going over, taking the land, that it wasn't going to be a piece of cake. He's going to have to fight for every inch of that land. So it is in the Christian life. We do fight and we do war against sin and against lust. And we do need to be strengthened and we do need help. And one of the means by which it will come will be by an understanding of the goodness of God. That's why he's going to tell us that the new birth begins at all there in verse 18. Every good gift comes from God. True? Well, we know that's true by verse 17. Well, it's of his will that he begat us. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a gift. Salvation, it is of not of your free will. It's of the will of God. And it's a good thing. And that's the very beginning of fighting against sin and temptation. Here again, that's why Daniel says, They that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. They that do know their God shall be strong 
and do exploits. Do you know Him? And that brings me then to the last point. Do you know Him in a saving manner? I don't know. I'm not saying do you have John Gill's theology book memorized. I'm saying do you know God in a saving manner? Jesus said, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Has God given you a revelation of the knowledge of Him and His Son? If not, then you know Him not. And you're an unbeliever. And if you perish in this state, you'll be damned forever. But God is gracious. He is good. And He gives good gifts. And He gives faith. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is conde- him that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. How stands it with your soul today? Do you have faith, saving faith? Are you looking and trusting in Christ? Have you repented of sin and sought refuge only in Him? If so, then you have received a good and perfect gift from God. What a salvation we possess. What a God is ours through grace.